What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Human beings have been telling stories for thousands of years, but what actually makes for a good story? Authors have been trying to settle on the great principles of compelling writing for as long as people have been writing. Yet as Deepa Anapra and Timur Sumru argue, something has gone amiss in these manuals of the art of storytelling. They have tended to privilege a Western perspective. Anapara and Sumru came to Intelligence Squared to talk about their new anthology, Letters to a Writer of Colour, in which they ask us to critically examine the assumptions that shape the way we think fiction should be written. What might fiction look like if we considered alternative ways of constructing narratives that were grounded in the experiences of people of colour? Together with two of the contributions to the collection, Charlene Teo and Leila Abulela, they explored one of the things we have a primal need for, stories and lots of different kinds of them. This event was recorded on the 4th of April, 2023. Hello, I'm Tamor Sumro, author of the novel Other Names for Love and co-editor with Deepa of Letters to a Writer of Colour. Deepa Anapara is a contributor to the collection as well as co-editor. Formerly a journalist, she's now an author, and her debut novel, Gin Patrol on the Purple Line, was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times. Charlene Teo is a Singaporean writer based in the UK and is the winner of the inaugural Deborah Rogers Writers' Award for her first novel, Ponty. Leila Abulela is an author, essayist, and playwright. She's the first ever winner of the Kane Prize for African Writing and the author of six novels, including Minaret. To start us off, Deepa, could you introduce Letters to a Writer of Colour to our audience? What it's about, its aims, and why it was so important to us to put it together? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Timur, and uh, thanks to Intelligence Squared for hosting this event. It's such a pleasure to be on this platform with two writers I admire, three writers really, Timur, Charlene and <laughs> Leila. So to introduce Letters to a Writer of Colour, it's a collection of personal essays by writers of colour about our experiences of writing and publishing a book. It's a book that asks us to redefine what we consider to be good writing and good storytelling, because a lot of the criteria has really been established by a white, male, American, almost aesthetic perspective. And this book asks us if we can redefine that criteria 
and how to do so if we acknowledge the plurality of our experiences and cultures. The idea for the book really came from our conversations, Tamor, both as students of writing and then as published novelists. We talked often about how our work was received differently, how it was often misread, and how many of the questions that we were asking about writing and about writing technique never came up in discussions, either in the classroom or in writing books or in reviews. And we had very specific challenges when we were writing from a very, you know, our stories were set in the non-Western world. And then there were always these questions of, should we translate our culture? Should we be translating our language? And what does it mean if we are explaining, if we over-explain or if we explain something that's evident to a character, is that pandering to a Western audience? So these were questions that we were grappling with about style. Should we be minimalist in our writing? Is there a different way of writing? And as we were grappling for answers, that was how this book was born, essentially. We decided to approach writers we admire and ask them about how they negotiated these challenges and you know, how did they grapple with the question of translation, for instance. So in many ways, Letters is pretty much, it follows the format of a creative writing guide in that the essays are about structure and characterization and showing and telling. But these are also intensely personal essays and each writer is writing about their experience of writing a book and you know, not just the technique or an aspect of craft. And I think one of the things I'm particularly proud of is the fact that none of the essays are prescriptive in that it's not saying this is how you write. Each writer is saying this was my experience. This is how I negotiated technical question around craft and this is what worked for me. And I think for that reason, this book, I think, is very necessary corrective in that people often dismiss as bad writing, writing that they don't understand or which is unfamiliar to them in many ways. And good writing is not just the way in which Americans write or people in Britain write. And there are different ways of telling a story and different storytelling traditions. And this is a book that asks readers and writers to be aware of these traditions. And I think it offers them a new vocabulary to discuss fiction. Thanks so much, Deepa. You also, you mentioned this point about who we're writing for an audience, and I think that's really fascinating and something we'll come back to. But before we go there, I, I wanted to note that, you know, when we were putting this together, we were conflicted about using that, this kind of taxonomy, writers of color, that it might be reductive, that it might be flattening. But ultimately, we felt that it was necessary both to to generate and acknowledge community and to gather together admittedly diverse writers who may experience similar biases from predominantly white readership and publishing. Leila, in your interview with Nadifa Muhammad in the collection, you expressed some discomfort with the terminology. Well, I've been writing and sending my work out now for 30 years. And during this 30 years, I've changed, obviously, from being an ethnic minority, which is how I've started, to now I'm being a person of color. So these names keep changing every, I don't know, five years, six, 10 years or whatever. And it's the changing that's bothering me rather more than the, the naming itself. Because if you keep, you know, who's who's calling me different things and it just makes me feel more and more that I am in a kind of a weak position, that I'm that that my identity seems to be problematic in such a way that we're always trying to find a way of describing it and not ever reaching a final description. So that's kind of my take on it, uh, mm. the, the, you know, the issue with it changing all, all the time. 
Yeah, and it feels like it's a it's a label that's sort of being applied to us in some ways, and I can understand that there are risks and harms with that. Um, Charlene, you mentioned in your essay in the collection on reception and resilience that when your debut novel was published, you'd find it in bookshops on tables where books seemed to have no thematic similarities except that they were by non-white people. Do you think that this kind of bundling together can ever be useful? I mean, what do, what do you think the risks or harms are? Well, I think like the, the kind of sales and marketing of a book and the kind of life that it has, especially when it comes out as a debut. I mean, I think most cultural industries, there's a huge sort of fetishism or excitement around around a debut in particular. Um, so a lot of those a lot of those forces are kind of out of our control. And I think they apply to any kind of creation, any kind of text. You know, it's going to be categorized quite broadly and quite reductively. And I think as a kind of non-white writer, a non-white sort of woman moving through the world, there is a kind of sensitivity that I feel when I feel like my identity and all the complexities, you know, from my lived experience feel in essence sort of reduced, flattened and homogenized. But then again, on, on the flip side of that, you know, one has to remember, like, at least with, with the politics of bookstores and bookstore spaces, I, I'm just even grateful <laughs> that I had a kind of a space in the table at the time. So it's, it's that kind of negotiation. Mm. which I think is ongoing. So many books are being published now than before by writers of color. Leila, you mentioned that you've been publishing for 30 years now, and I imagine you've seen, I hope you've seen a lot of changes in that time. But it feels like there's still a long way to go. There aren't enough books and there isn't enough diversity in the stories being published. And that inevitably has an effect on readers who want to be writers. Deepa, you write in your essay Mm -hmm. in the collection, For long periods in my life, I didn't write because I thought I couldn't, I mustn't, because I was a girl, poor, ill, brown, because I was without skill, language, time. How did you move beyond that? I mean, I want to say I moved beyond that, but the truth is that (laughs) (laughs) I'm wrestling with that question every day. And I think it's very easy if you don't come from a certain kind of background because publishing especially is so white it's so middle class and if you come from a different background you can really feel that you don't belong here you know and it's it is it is a task to convince myself that I have something to say and it is a curious thing because there's a part of me that does believe that I have something to say which nobody else is saying and I have a story that's very unique to me that I want to tell so I do have that conviction but it is really wrestling with that question of, uh, is it something that others want to hear? I don't really know. Um, So it is something that I struggle with pretty much every day. I do write in the essay about uh, Montaigne um, and how he talks about his cabbage garden and not really worrying about what it's going to look like at the end of it and really just finding happiness in planting cabbages every day. So that's something, it's a principle I try to apply to writing, uh, you know, in a way to convince myself that just do your writing for today and not really think about, uh, you know, the readership, for instance, at least as I'm writing, I try to push those thoughts away. And that's pretty much the only way in which I can convince myself to write because uh, it, it does require a tremendous amount of resilience, I think. And Charlene does write about that in her essay on mm-hmm. resilience and, you know, how our work is received. And so many factors are out of our control. And writing is pretty much the only thing we can control. And I do try to remind myself of that. I don't know if that answers your question, Tim, or 
Yes, it does. I mean, Layla, did you feel any similar sort of challenges when you began writing that, you know, you didn't see stories that you recognized being published and, you know, you felt a sort of imperative to write to challenge that or you felt like an obstacle to writing because of that? I was so driven. I was so like full of this writing and I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop writing in my head. My children were young. I was uh, doing the dishes and writing and looking after children and writing in my head and then running to put down paragraphs. So it was like a wildness. I didn't consider all these things. I didn't care. It was just, <laughs> I wanted to write. I was passionate about it. Back in, in the day, in the 90s, uh, yeah, people like me were looked at, our writing was looked at through an anthropological lens. My novel, you mentioned Minaret, uh, it was described as a breakthrough novel. It was the first time people were hearing about Muslims in a mosque, in a London mosque. And this was kind of how it was received. But at the same time, in back in those days, it was easy to be successful because you didn't have to sell so many copies. So now, uh, even though the situation is better for younger writers of color uh, in terms of reception and in terms of uh, a desire to increase diversity, the market is harsher, the economy is harsher, the, the publication is more uh, demanding of you to be successful in the marketplace. So that is also going to, I think, influence what is happening to, to writers now. You know, this this point about being read sort of anthropologically, you touch on that, Charlene, in your essay as well. And you quote Elaine Castillo and talk about a distinction for a reader between learning and feeling. I wondered if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, it's, it's a, Elaine Castillo's like brilliant quote where she says, uh, readers, generally white readers, end up going to writers of colour to learn the specific and they go to white writers to feel the universal so it's this very crucial distinction between like with a project of a novel, like trying to learn or sort of kind of glean about the other from it versus feeling like kind of just immersing yourself in in the kind of sensory and kind of emotive world of the novel. And I think that's a crucial sort of ongoing distinction. Why do you think it's a problem? Well, Graham Huggin has a good a good book about that um, called The Postcolonial Exotic, which kind of articulates um, certain kinds of tropes or commonalities in, in, in fiction, generally like not, not necessarily most com contemporary pieces of fiction um, that kind of deal in, deal in tropes and, and stereotypes to an extent and, and the ways in which these stereotypes sort of console or consolidate existing ideas about a culture or the otherness of a culture. Um, and I think that, that that really plays into, if you're a writer, writing from any other kind of marginalized culture or community from the periphery, this sort of burden of expectation to to sort of deliver, you know, what what Chimamanda Medici calls a single story. You know, this this kind of informative grand narrative that, that kind of explains that otherness. And and obviously, you know, that's that's more than one person can possibly take on. <laughs> yeah. Leila, you mentioned it too when you you know, in your interview with um Nadifa, and you say that, look, if a reader thinks that what I have written is the story of Sudan, then that's their issue. It's not mine. I mean, do you think that there's anything that we can or should do as writers when, you know, is this something that we need to or should think about? 
No, because uh, we are not really responsible for this. And we you can't control how your work is going to be received. Mm-hmm. And if it's received in a certain way today, it might not be received in that way, you know, five years later or, or 10 years uh, later. So it's it's very difficult for the writer to kind of uh, to control these factors. I would just say, just write, write what you want to write and forget everything else. It's, it's um, just go for it, I would say. You use this phrase in your conversation with Nadifa, the writer leads the reader, um, which I thought was wonderful. I wondered if you could explain or elaborate on that. Yeah, it was something that the late Yvonne Vera said uh, said to me, you know, when I was um, just starting out and I was uh, telling her I'm writing a new novel. And she said, well, you know, we, we are going to follow you. You just write what you want to write and we are the readers will follow you. So I feel then that, you know, when I'm writing, this is my my novel. This is my space. This is my rules. I'm hosting, <laughs> you know, the reader is, is welcome to come in. I'm inviting the reader to come in. But it's at my on my terms. It's not mm-hmm. on the reader's uh, terms. I can't control if the reader is going to be comfortable or not comfortable because I don't know who the reader is. They change all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them weren't even born when I wrote. I have novels in print now that that were written before certain readers who are reading them now were born. So, mm-hmm. what can you say about that? <laughs> This issue of feeling a sort of burden of representation, Deepa, I was wondering whether you felt that when you were writing or later when you were editing, you talked about um, how your publishers came back to you and asked you to make the novel happier, to revise it to make it happier. And you thought, well, that would please the Indian reader who doesn't want to see Indian trauma and poverty on the page. I was wondering if you could talk about that. And did you make the novel happier? How did you how did you deal with that that sort of pressure? <laughs> the short answer to that question is it is not a happy novel still, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it is really connected to what Leila and Charlene have been saying about that question of representation, which is part of the reason why we feel this huge pressure on ourselves. Sadie Smith, in her essay, you know, in defense of fiction, she writes about that. And she says that John Updike never has to worry is his representation of a white man. Does that mean, you know, it's not going to stereotype every white man. Mm -hmm. No one is going to think all white men are like this. But whereas if you see only a couple of books come out uh, from, say, India, and then you do feel that uh, question about am I... Are people going to say that this is what my country is like? And mm-hmm. I was especially aware of that because when I moved to this country was when uh, Slumdog Millionaire was released. And, you know, I was accosted by questions like everywhere I went. That was re- literally the first question people would ask me, is India really like that? And I was really fed up and exhausted mm-hmm. by that question. And so I was very aware. I was writing about poverty in India and I knew that there would be a tendency to you know, see that as the experience of every Indian, see the experience of my characters as that of every Indian there, because the knowledge of India is so little. And this is something Shalugo writes about in her piece on translation in our collection, which is that, you know, the Western reader doesn't have the knowledge about Chinese books, for instance. And so it is, sometimes it falls on her to bridge that gap, which is there. So, I didn't want to stereotype my country. At Mm -hmm. the same time, I wanted it to be true. I wanted, uh, you know, the experiences of many Indians to be reflected in the pages. And 
it's interesting that there is an expectation that we will tell our stories of trauma, for instance, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what the Western audience wants to read. But it's a very particular kind of trauma story in a way, which is that, you know, it will follow certain Western conventions. As Ingrid Rojas Contreras writes about trauma in the book. And there's a sense that it needs to be resolved. And, you know, the protagonist has somehow found a way to move past whatever trauma was there. For me, that was really difficult because that's not how trauma works. And it's something that's sometimes passed down over generations, for instance. So really, I think, uh, you know, it is a question that I have been grappling with because I'm very aware that there is there are certain expectations in the West and there are certain expectations in India about which I'm writing. And, you know, that sensitivity that Indians have about how they're portrayed very rightly. So the fear that they're being stereotyped or uh, shown in a sort of negative way. And for me, the solution really was to think only about my characters and really portray the world as the character would. And my book, uh, Gin Patrol, is told from the point of view of a nine-year-old. And he does have, you know, there is a lightness in his tone and he's he's a child, so he sees the world differently. So that was really, that lightness in the tone was really important to me to show that, you know, people are much more than their problems and they don't need to be reduced to that to the worst thing that's happened to them. I have to be honest, you know, for me as well, sometimes it does feel like work to resist the stereotypes that we're fed, that I'm fed about what Pakistanis are like, what Muslims are like. It feels like a political choice in some ways to write violence, not to write violence. And, you know, Deepa, you were talking about, um, you know, the reader wanting something that's familiar, and it feels in some ways as though if we want to sell copies, if we want to get the big book deal and to win prizes, that there are rewards if we write what's familiar. If I write about Muslim extremism, if I write about the misogyny of Pakistani men, that there's an audience for that. Leila, you you know, you mentioned this in your interview with Nadifa and you said to make a book appealing to as many readers as possible, you have to make it less culturally challenging. And I felt like that spoke to some of these pressures. I wondered what you thought. This is how I feel as a reader reading other books that are successful. I find that the, the culture is kind of becoming a little bit uh, diluted. But that's also because the writers themselves are becoming more let's say, westernized. I mean, this is this is something that we don't talk about. Different writers of color, how are they, how close are they to their traditions and to their cultures? Perhaps they might be second generation. They might not never have lived in the home of their parents. They might not know the language. So there's there's a huge, huge difference in terms of experience, in terms of how the writer, the writer's day-to-day life, what are they doing? Who are their friends? Most of my friends are not writers. I have friends who have never read my work because they don't read fiction. And I want to keep this. I mean, I'm, this is, this is my, my, my choice. So it depends then where you are, as, as, uh, where are you placed within this, um, let's call it a spectrum. So the more, of course, the more closer you are as a writer to the white Western world and the more comfortable you are in it, then the more your writing will reflect that. And then you will feel that I don't want to write about back home because that isn't really my home. My home is, is, is here. And I think that that is to do with each individual writer. There is also this kind of gravitational force which sort of 
pulls us westward in some ways, in the sense that, you know, for me, selling my book in Pakistan is not going to make me enough money to live, but selling it in England or in the US could. And then that creates pressures, which I, I know I should resist, but creates pressures when I'm writing. Charlene, you talk about writing back to Singapore and in some ways writing to a sort of a Singapore that's that's disappeared or that's imaginary. I mean, did you feel this kind of like this sort of tension between your Singaporeanness and your, to the extent that you have it or you consider that you have an identity as, you know, Brit, someone who's British or as an immigrant? You know, did you feel a tension there when you were writing? I'm definitely not British. I think I'm just like a foreigner. I've always felt kind of unmoored and, and isolated uh, wherever I am. <laughs> so so I, I used to really grapple with this idea of um, a kind of imagined readership or, um, you know, the, the narcissism of minor differences, like, you know, the worst critics being these imagined male Singaporean writers who, who were fact-checking everything I was saying, and <laughs> really gatekeeping my cultural veracity, you know, like X number of years I've been away, the less legitimate I am, the less right I have to uh, kind of narrate from a particular point of view. It's not to say that I'm past that. I think everybody, every every writer, I think they're honest, kind of suffers from that kind of neuroses. And I think it's healthy in a way. Um, I, I do often question and, and, and kind of analyze my own decisions. Like, why am I choosing to write from this point of view, especially if it's not one I share? you know, in terms of an identity position, things like that, you know, that, you know, other writers, you mentioned a bit in your essay, Tamar, which I love, uh, you know, they just don't have to, they just have to think about that, you know, they have that kind of mobility and that kind of, uh, I think I have a friend, uh, I met in creative writing camp when we were teenagers, she, she's a Singaporean writer as well, we used to say that kind of feeling like post-colonial Singaporean subjects, we were in this really crowded shop cluttered with different kinds of objects from everywhere, and I felt like if we were like, white western cowboys like you know the stage is clear <laughs> and stable so you can do whatever you want you know you can throw anything at that and, and you know there's a lot less of um, a, a, a kind of need to establish a consensus reality uh, than if you're kind of writing from anywhere in the margins or, or the peripheries of that particularly with america and the role it plays in cultural imagination i think that has a knock-on effect I think, to, to writers and, and I think readers at large. I mean, the, that question of authenticity, of feeling sort of authentic enough for me to feel authentic enough to write the Pakistani story. Am I Pakistani enough to write it? Amitava Kumar speaks about that, I think, mm-hmm. really interestingly in his essay. Was it something that concerned you, this question of authenticity or, or a feeling like you had the right to tell this story, that you knew enough to tell this story? It's interesting because I moved to the UK, you know, uh, when I was, I was already my own person. So I didn't come here for studies, for instance, as a young person, in which case it would have been, I think my experience would have been different. So I felt very, you know, very rooted in my traditions. And um, I grew up reading books in uh, Indian languages. So I knew, you know, I came from a different storytelling tradition and I felt quite confident in that. But I think being, you know, uh, attending a writing course here was, that was where the questions first started to come up as in, am, you know, am I doing the right thing? Should I be writing in a different way? And as I was writing the book, I did think about what right do I have to tell the story? Because it is about a very impoverished, uh, marginalized community. And I don't really, be- you know, the reason 
those stories are not being told is because of all the kind of structural inequalities that exist. So I did wonder about uh, crossing a line that I shouldn't cross. And so those questions were always there and I, I, you know, I have been grappling with it. I knew that I had the, you know, some form of authority to tell the story because of the work that I had done as a journalist and the fact that, you know, I was really familiar with what I was writing about. But you still have some doubts, you know, at the end of the day. But I, I would say I was really surprised that uh, when the book came out, there were people who said, what right does she have to tell a story? And, you know, someone who lives in the UK. So in that sense, my experience was quite similar to you know, Charlene had those imaginary critics and I heard from some of those real critics in real life. <laughs> yeah. Was there a readership that you were thinking about when you were writing the book, Deepa, or that you were most concerned about, or once the book was written that you were most concerned about? So I think, you know, part of the way in which I dealt with many of those ethical questions that I had, one way was to really think, what if, you know, the characters that I'm writing about, what if they were to read the book and how would they respond to it? Like, are they going to find it stereotypical and cliched and are they going to see themselves in the pages? So for me, that was a big question and it was always there. And it was kind of like my guiding principle as I was writing the book was really think about that community, knowing fully well that, you know, nobody from that neighborhood was ever going to ever pick up the book, for instance, because they wouldn't even be speaking in English. But I found that really helpful. And I think, you know, Leila in her interview also talks about that, actually. And it confirmed to me that that was the right way to go about writing a book like that, which is about people who are not really represented in literature. And then they might not read it now because they don't know English, but mm -hmm. their children one day might. Yeah. You know, you know, so it's it will reach them one day. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Um, really, for me, it was so surprising to see that in your words, because that was, you know, I didn't know that anybody else had done that. But to see it in your interview, that was like almost, you know, it felt like a confirmation to me and also like a relief that this is something that you can do. And yeah. Yeah, no, no, I do that. And then I've, I've been rewarded by seeing that as time goes by, then that does happen. The book eventually finds its readers, its characters. Yeah. You'd said in your interview, Leila, you talked about the audience being the people you're writing about too. You know, what Deepa was saying as well. Is that something that matters to you the most when you're writing the book and you're thinking about them? Or are you not really thinking about them very much at all at the point no, that you're I'm writing? No, I'm I'm thinking about them. I, 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 I know that it's not realistically, they are not going to be the readers. I know mm -hmm. that realistically, in terms of numbers, the, the readers are going to be the white average reader who reads a lot. And so they read a lot. But somehow I, in my fantasy, I aim at that particular reader who is the character I'm writing about. And I hope that it will kind of reach them one day. And also it's because I don't want to be a native informer. I don't want to be the one talking about one community to another community. There's something doesn't seem right about it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I'm not happy with this position. So I try and stay with the people that I'm writing about. Does it feel like a political choice in some ways? Uh, does it sound like it's, it's political? I don't know. <laughs> but... <laughs> I think it's a long range thing because eventually maybe they're not, the women I'm writing about, let's say, maybe they're not going to read it because they don't read a lot of fiction. 
or they don't read in English, but then their children might one day, you know, their, their daughters or their granddaughters. So just to have the, 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 comp the complete egoistical idea that I'm going to stay in print, <laughs> I'm going to stay in print <laughs> until I get these readers. <laughs> so that's, I guess, what, what the determination is, you know. <laughs> and those readers aren't, you know, it's, it's, they're not a sort of a, a fixed demographic in some ways. You know, you're talking in your essay about how you have this sort of multiplicity of identities that's kind of constantly shifting. And whether you're Sudanese, immigrant, British, Scottish, Black, Arab, Muslim, you're all of those things, but how they sort of balance against each other. And I suppose that to some extent may inform as well your sense of your readership or not. Yes, yes. And it is kind of fluctuating. I mean, one of the strange developments that happened throughout my career is that a lot of sort of uh, ed educated Arabs have now become uh, English speaking more and more and you're an English readers more and more. So that has grown. This kind of readership has grown sort of Arabs who speak English. When I was writing as an Arab in English, that was considered we were very much a minority at the time. Mm -hmm sort of a, a westernized Arab who writes in Anglophone kind of Arab. But now, you know, there's so many international schools there, you know, English is spread throughout the Gulf and the Arab countries. So there's more of a readership in English. And I, I wasn't expecting that, to be honest. To sort of circle back to where the conversation began, you know, thinking about identity and the sort of identity categories that we choose or that are placed on us. Charlene, I was wondering, you know, you talked a bit about thinking about the Singaporean man reading, critically studying your book for mistakes. I was wondering whether does a sense of your own identity inform your writing choices in some ways? And where does that sense of identity come from? I'm completely obsessed with Singapore and Singaporeanness and all the kind of multiplicities of that, the, the hybridities and the contradictions. And, and the idea, the thing that I've come to feel consoled by is that absolutely nobody has any right to gatekeep what isn't, isn't kind of authentic to that. It, Singapore is almost like a kind of thematic, oh, sure, geographic as well, container of nostalgia, imagination, memory, inquiry for me. And it's just something that I find most compelled to explore through the kind of book length <laughs> narration that is a shaggy beast of a novel. Um, however long or however much I fail at that, it's something that I feel deeply kind of passionate about. I don't necessarily feel a political representational purpose or anything, anything grand like that, but it's, it's just where my fascination lies. And I think that's simple as that and something that I'm feeling increasingly kind of consoled by to your question about the intersection of kind of identity and how that plays into meaning making and the project of novel writing is um I think I'm I think I'm getting increasingly attuned to and aware that failure and doubt and self-loathing is really part of the process. <laughs> like that that if I if I don't constantly feel like I'm failing or, or just being really insulting or, you know, just just writing terribly, then maybe I'm not I'm not challenging myself. So good. Yes, it's good, but tough. As Deepa said, it requires a lot of resilience. So, so I was just going to say that the, the great irony, and I'm sure all of us here can relate to it, is that once the book is out, right, then you're, you're kind of invited to these events on stage and, and asked to comment very authoritatively on every single process, a part of the process, as if it was completely deliberate. They'll be like, tell me about you know this great thing or tell me about this thing on page 170. And you're like, 
Hmm, just made it up. (laughs) (laughs) That actually is the perfect segue because I also wanted to ask all of you about some of the reader responses that you've had, either in person at events or readers who've reached out to you. What responses you found meaningful, either in a sort of toxic or challenging way or in a kind of positive way? Deepa? Oh, no, I was hoping you wouldn't pick me first (laughs) because this (laughs) this is such a difficult question to answer. Um, You know, by nature, I don't know, it's because of your insecurities, you go straight to the kind of negative responses you get. And I would say I was really surprised by the number of uh, Western readers who kind of Googled my name, found my website and thought it necessary to leave me an email saying, you know, I've got too many Indian words in my novel and you should have really put the glossary up front and do you know how difficult it is to use a glossary on Kindle, which I actually didn't know. So I would get those sorts of emails. But I would say the nicer nicer messages, for instance, would be from people from a part of the world where I, would, I wouldn't even imagine my book being read there, writing to me saying, you know, they connected with something in the book, whether that's the way in which I'd written about poverty or the experiences of people in poverty. Those messages were ones that I found meaningful. And also some conversations with school students who had read the book. So it was really nice to hear from children who were around or just older than my character and what they thought of the story and the setting. Yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, Leila, are there any sort of reader interactions that you felt are particularly meaningful? Well, I early on, I mentioned that I think in the interview with Nadifa, the, the lady who was very angry at a reading and she said the Sudanese are there's war in your country you know the people are suffering there's famine there's civil war uh, why aren't you writing about these things I don't want to read about educated Sudanese going to university in the west and she was very upset and you know very very passionate and I remember saying to her but it would be patronizing for me to write about these things that I don't know about, that other writers should, should are doing that, and, and maybe if they, you, you should read these other, these other writers. But I don't think nowadays I would get such a comment. You know, I think that that is something that wouldn't be said now, not in, not in a festival, not in an event. Yeah. I think a writer, Deepa, and I know emailed us just uh, yesterday to say that she received a message from a student who had studied her. She's a writer of color and a student studied her book at school. And she said, oh, yeah, I, you know, I, I learned so much from your book. It was really informative. The characters were very two dimensional. And I wondered whether this is because of Eastern culture or whether there was some other re- there was some other reason for that. So that kind of horrifying comment made me think that in some ways, Yes, I, I think, Leila, you're right. Those kinds, Some of those questions, I hope, would not be asked. But in, in other ways, it seems like those questions are, are still there. And they're in, in sort of young people as well who are going to, who I hope will not hold on to them. Uh, thank you all. Thanks, Charlene, Deepa, Leila, for a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And to our audience and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. Letters to a Writer of Colour is available now in all good bookshops. This podcast was produced by executive producer Hannah Kay, with editing by executive producer Rowan Slaney. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. 
send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.